This is a When Walls Can Talk network podcast. Hi, my name is Jeremy Haig, psychic medium, tarot reader, and proud nerd of the occult and the spiritual. I've been talking to the dead since before I can remember. Hearing their stories and listening to their lessons radically changed my life and taught me to become more curious and peel back the layers of the world around me. On this podcast, I invite you on a journey as we discuss spirituality hot topics with specialists and practitioners from across the witchcraft community, pull and explore monthly collective tarot readings, and recount lost or forgotten paranormal stories from around the world. This is When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. First off, it's kind of insane how completely different this episode is about to be from anything else in the show, season one or season two. Hey guys, it's Jeremy, back from When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. I have something completely different for you today, and I hope you guys are along for the ride. This is probably going to be a little bit longer, a little bit more freeform, and I'm just super excited. We've been talking about doing this for months now, and when I sat down to think about how I wanted to go into Halloween this year for the podcast, how I wanted to go into the Samhain season, I knew that I could not go past everybody's favorite season of the year without talking about one of the biggest cultural influences uh, that there really is, honestly, and that is horror and the genre of horror in film. And when I thought about that, I knew immediately who to ask to join and talk about this with me on the show today, and it is my very best friend who I've known for six years, six long, beautiful years. It's my friend Nick. Hey, Nick. Welcome to the show. Hello. I love how are you doing? We're amazing. It's Friday. I'm having a cider, and it feels so needed. (laughs) And this has been the longest 30 days, by the way, of my life. It really has. I have seen every goddamn horror movie there possibly could be. It's true. So I asked Nick, I said, hey, I want to sit down. I want to talk about the classic horror genre. When, whenever I approach some of these different topics that we cover on the show, I really try to approach it from a historical perspective, a societal perspective, and kind of just be curious and try to look into why did these places and events occur in the first place. So I wanted to do the same with the horror genre. I wanted to ask why. And I'll be completely honest, while I know many of the films that would be deemed iconic and have seen them countless times, I'm not what I would call, like, a horror junkie. I don't know everything about everything, but you do. (laughs) So I asked Nick to make me a list, and I wanted him to make me a list of some of the movies that he thinks were most... Influential. Exactly, and contributed the most to the development of... The genre, the the genre, the <laughs> horror genre as a whole, um, and he made me a list, and we've watched a lot of movies. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've watched what ten in total. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Some of which were easier to sit through than others. We'll get to why, and we'll get to their names. But I guess first, let me back up. Let me ask. Um, first of all, can you introduce yourself to the podcast and tell us a little bit about why film? Yeah, of course. So, I am not a film major. I am just a film buff. I am a junkie for horror. And 
I started with films when I was really young. My dad is an old school guy. He likes anything that is black and white, doesn't like anything in color. So I grew up with that era. And if he was really good with trivia too. So if I wanted to know something, he wasn't giving it up. He, was like, <laughs> he said, go look for yourself. Uh, I also grew up in the age of the internet, so that helped. Um, and it just, it was great. I started getting into things from the 20s, the 30s, uh, moved on into the 60s, 70s, which is my favorite period. And yeah, it just kept growing to this day, and I am a huge film fan. Are your favorite films horror films? No. I didn't think so. Actually, what would you say uh, is like, the? what are like your... My top three? Yeah, what are like your go-to 2001 A Space Odyssey. I could have told you Halloween, that. Halloween, actually. Yeah. I will give that as number two. I could have I could have guessed that one, too, knowing you. Mm-hmm. And I would have to say Memento. Oh, interesting. I did not expect that one. Yeah. That one's a different one. I love that. I'm, I love the independent film genre of the 90s into the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, and Chris Nolan just did a great job with that movie. Uh, I think his brother did an amazing job writing it, too, so... Yeah, I would say that one, but Halloween is my favorite, and I have a great story for that when we get to it. Okay, cool. How about, um, I asked you about film, is there any particular reason that you gravitated towards the horror genre over time? And in particular, I mean in terms of doing research about it, and studying about it, and learning the stories behind it, and that kind of thing. Well, screw it, we'll just get it to it now then. Done, okay, All let's right, go. So, uh, when I was really young, I was five years old, or six years old, when my, when my parents showed me Halloween, it was my parents, it was my siblings. They're much older than I am, and my brother wanted to show me this so badly because he just wanted to scare the living shit out of me. Okay. So he just was ruthless and relentless for about a week and a half to my point where my dad said, all right, screw this. We're going to sit down. He showed me the making of this movie. Okay. And I think that was a brilliant choice as a parent. Golf clap on you, dad. Um, But... It didn't help. It just expanded my, you know, reach into the genre. Yeah. So I watched Last House on the Left at a way too young age. <laughs> uh, I've seen Hellraiser at like 9 or 10. Okay. That, I almost vomited watching that film. It was that bad. And that was your introduction to Halloween? Yeah. So if my brother didn't torment me, I, this wouldn't be a thing. Do you think watching the behind the scenes ahead of time helped eliminate some of the fear or did it make your imagination go even more wild? It almost ruined yeah. uh, horror films going forward because I was knowing to expect yeah. most. It was cliches upon cliches. Right. And then if you watch Scream, it's just worse. Yeah. Especially in my generation, where it being from the 90s. Yeah, I just... It, they're not as scary as they should be or as I want them to be. Right. So when you see something like... Uh, I was really scared by As Above So Below. I, I think love... That was, that's in my top horror movies, personally. Lately, it has been. It's not on this list. Yeah. But it's... It's just reinventing the genre. I'm, yeah. I'm not a huge fan of found film genre, yeah. just in general, and that one just blew me away. Yeah. Movies like that, Paranormal Activity, I think it's great, um, but it's hard for like the slasher genre right now. Right. Um, if you've seen Halloween Kills, that just came out. That's brutal. That's ruthless. Really? Movie. Oh, yeah. I, haven't, I have not watched it yet. I recommend on yeah. my list uh, because it, it's uh, bringing something forward into the genre again. Okay. I think Rob Zombie did a great job with that, with the remake of Halloween. I haven't seen the remake either, so I'll have to go back. I'd be really interested because I've kind of invested a little bit in learning about the Halloween franchise as a part of preparing for this episode because not only did we watch the first one, and we'll get to this because we're going to kind of start from the beginning and kind of walk through all of these together with you guys. Um, well, we watched the first Halloween, we watched the sixth Halloween, 
And I also watched the Netflix episode that literally just came out on the movies that made us love the entire series. It's incredible. I love the stories about some of the movies that you know and love that we deem like iconic pieces of like Oscar bait um, that were nearly canned like six times um, <clears throat> for Scump. Um, <laughs> but it's really cool then to go back and appreciate the movie for existing in the first place in a whole new way. Anyway, I'm rambling. But I have spent quite a bit of time learning about uh, kind of the ragtag bunch of filmmakers that made that. And I think that's one of the things that I've come to appreciate the slasher genre more through this process because so many of them were done with 50 cents in a prayer and um, a, a re- quite literally a rental video camera from University of Texas. Yes, I'm talking about you, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> but, like, that is cool to me. And it's not just slasher genre, because that slasher genre is, uh, like, a subcategory within horror. Totally. It's in all of horror, just in general. Besides for Saw, in the past ten years, I feel like I'm seeing more of things like Crimson Peak, uh, Paranormal Activity. Well, Crimson Peak. All these different films where they're focusing more on the paranormal realm. Right. Which I appreciate, because since Rosemary's Baby and The Omen, we haven't seen anything that good come out uh, in that type of category. I love Rosemary's Baby. I'm glad you said that. I love that movie. We don't condone Roman Polanski, but we love that movie. Oh, mine. How terrifying. We'll tilt it again. It's because we mentioned Rosemary's Baby. Oh, that is fucking real. (laughs) Yeah, y'all, the microphone just tipped over right after we talked about Rosemary's Baby. It's not going well already. (laughs) I know how this movie goes. I've seen it. I've seen 30 of them. (laughs) Uh, So I want to segue by asking you the biggest question. Okay. What's your favorite scary movie? Okay. So here's the deal. (laughs) I have a feeling I'm not going to like this answer. I don't know if you're... I don't... No, I don't think you're going to dislike this answer. My answer for my favorite horror movie is almost... It's pretty much, without a question, The Conjuring. Okay. Uh, For several reasons, some of which are related to the film industry and some which aren't. One is I'm just really, really inspired by Ed and Lorraine Warren, despite the fact that they've taken some creative liberties with their characters. But, of course, Lorraine was on set for almost all of the Conjuring universe, or all of the James... James Wan, right? James Wan? Yeah, mm-hmm. James Wan. So I really I, I really like the universe that they've built throughout the series. That does not include the Annabelle movies. I do not like those movies. I think they're so boring. They're, I mean, they're fun, but you know everything that's going to happen. Again, I think all horror films kind of take from each other. Totally. Oh, most A lot of our lists takes from each other. Yeah. So they just put it into a new... New decade. Yeah. For a new audience, new generation. But I would say the ones that I tend to come back to the most are ones like The Conjuring. I thought The Conjuring 2 fit beautifully into the universe, was different enough to not be stacked directly against the first, which I really appreciated. It wasn't what we had come to expect from the first one. I also loved The Nun. And I think a lot of people don't like The Nun. I think, I will agree, I think the climax and, like, the way The Nun is destroyed is like a, well, that seems obvious. We could have done that 50 years ago. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing where it's like, how come nobody thought of this to begin with? I've never seen it. But I love the majesty, and I mean that in the most terrifying sense. I think The Nun is one of the scariest horror villains I have ever seen. Because... She commands your fear before she even appears on camera because of the frickin' score that they have for those movies. But that's this is also what makes me excited, is when you... They play off of your anticipations. They build off of your fears. It's And we'll talk about this with most of the movies we're talking about. It's more about what you don't see than what you see. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Alfred Hitchcock. 
So I would say The Conjuring is probably my favorite. Close seconds would be As Above, So Below. I think it's freaking cool. I love the way that there's a subtle reference to Dante's Seven Levels of Hell in it. Um, I also love The Gallows, which we watched together. As Above, So Below is like on steroids for The Gallows. It It really is. It was a great story. It was a it was um, detailed. Yeah. They actually went back, did some research. It wasn't just a regular horror film. Yeah. About teenagers. It was about an archaeologist. Right. I would never have come up with that type of storyline. Right. Uh, well, also as somebody who is semi... <laughs> underplaying it. Semi-involved <laughs> in the occult world. It's also exactly what I would expect to find as uh, a cult enthusiast, a paranormal weirdo, a... Spirit, like a a a witch. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to get at without saying it. Um, as a witch, this is ex- like exactly how I expect that occur. Like that's exactly how I think it'd go down. Like for real, for real. Not even like in a movie. And the fact that it plays off of that makes it just really fun to watch. I was really claustrophobic in that movie. Yeah, and that's hard. Yeah, I think, to do. So I think let's get into it then. Are we going back in time? Yes, we're gonna go back in time. Over a hundred years. And nobody spoke. <laughs> the world was black and white, and nobody knew how to talk. <laughs> it was a lot more racist, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, okay, I guess this is also a really good place to say two things. One, this is a spoiler alert for... It's a spoiled-filled <laughs> podcast. Yeah, this is a delayed spoiler alert. I realize like, we probably ruined a bunch of other movies already, but this is, like, this is my... I'm covering my bases. <laughs> We're going to ruin these horror movies for you, so I have a feeling most of you have seen these. If not, you're now going to want to. We highly recommend all of these. We do. I do. We do. Anyway, (laughs) um, I just want to put that out there. Second, um, we also do not condone any of the societal norms of the times of these movies that came out. So we're going to probably bring some of those up. We do not condone them. Uh, Yeah, I guess that's it. I just feel like we have to say that with some of the ones that we're talking about. Mainly the first one. Mainly the first one. Mainly the first one. Where are we starting? Uh, Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation. The, originally called The Klansman. Mm. If we... We don't already know where that's segueing. Look at that. Look at us go. <laughs> Look at us humans. What did you think? Okay, so I'm going to be completely honest with everybody on the podcast here. This movie is like three and a half fucking hours long. If you can find it. If you can find it. I did find it on YouTube um, because, whoopsies, public domain is a thing because somebody didn't think to, what was it? I don't remember the They story. didn't renew the copyright. Which is laughable considering the fact that like it's... It went into public domain. Anybody can buy and sell this thing. And isn't it in some sort of uh, U.S. government record now of like uh, a like a seminal piece of... Uh, the United States Congress's... Um, it's not in there because of its... Library of Congress. Yeah. But it's not there because of the movie itself. It's there because of... It's a National Film Registry. That's what it is. It's preserving film. So after Ted Turner decided to buy the collection of the backlots, uh-huh. so all these old films, Casablanca, all these really amazing films, he decided to colorize them. Uh-huh. So everybody was in uproars. probably about late 80s, early 90s. Okay. The National Film Registry came into place. Yeah. They film, pick so many films per year that go into the uh, United States Library of Congress. Okay. They're preserved. So nobody can tamper with them. They even have a, um, a research lab where they'll restore films. Okay. So if you want to know, know more about them, definitely go to the Library of Congress website. Oh, yeah. And to answer your question, I watched like half of the movie. <laughs> that was my honesty moment that I didn't have to do for a second, so I just had to complete that honesty moment because... It's a hard film to watch. It, it was It was tough. 
it's, it's very relevant for our times. Yeah, I think. it is. I really wanted to put this one on our list. I think everybody should watch this one. This should be something that should be watched in every school. I agree. To remind people to not go back in time, not to go back in history. Yeah. Don't take a step back into racism. Push forward. A yeah. Bit. Not trying to put my political beliefs or whatever. In my no, 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 no. I, I think and it's kind with, of impaired. Like it's, if we don't show this, much like um, Schindler's List, yeah. if we don't remind people of what's happened and the terror of what's happened, right. we cannot move forward as a society. So why did this one make your list? It I is, have a guess, but I'm cu- I want to I want to know your thoughts as to why this one made um, not only made the list, but made the list as the first film in this kind of little horror timeline that we've put together. It's one of the early films. It was one of the first films to be shown to the president, which, yes. that's amazing. What did you think of that? I thought that was cool. And I thought it was really interesting. I, I, cool it's, or controversial? Yeah. Which, I don't know where to, to, to put on that, but this is a brutal movie. It is. And it's also, it's tough to watch now, too, because your your hero would be an anti-hero in most other things now, in terms of, like, we're left with the... In basically development of the and creation of the Ku Klux Klan, and it's also kind of your hero, and it's and and the filmmaker did not intend for this, and yeah. that's why the movie Intolerance came out uh, the following year or two. It was to show that this was not the film that he wanted. He didn't want to portray them as um, heroes. He wanted to warn people. Yeah, this was very much a this is history. Yes, this should not happen again. This is. In our history, and I'm glad you brought that stay up. There. I'm glad you brought that up too because I think that the two are uh, critically linked. To, like they kind of have to remain critically linked together for that reason. Yes. Yeah, so if you're gonna watch this, and if you're if you hate me for making you watch it, watch Intolerance because that's his I'm apology letter. Basically. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point. Uh, there's uh, there's a lot of blackface in the film, which is uh, a little distressing to watch in in the in the the volume of it in the movie is just and I it's we also can't sit here and really it's just brutal it's it's just tough to watch that's I think the biggest reason I made it partway through also um, it's it's early film it's early film and it's we're, we are so spoiled with the quality of film that we see today that when we have to put a little extra effort into piecing all of the pieces together ourselves with our brain. I guess that was a read. I really didn't need it to be a read. I was like, damn, that was harsh. But it's tr- it's true. We're, we're very used to having all the pieces put together for us in terms of um, effects and colorization and score and all these things are layered together so we're processing all this information at one time. In silent film, which is, is not the only silent film that we covered, all of these pieces are broken up. Yes. And yes. you kind of have to do a lot of work as the audience to put all these pieces together. When it's done right, this movie's good for the sense it's history it needs to be shown and I commend the the filmmakers I guess for making it and have the balls to make it I guess at that point and in that time maybe it was easier I don't know but it needs to be shown it needed to happen maybe I'm just rambling I know so actually my theory behind why you put it on the list my, my theory behind why it made the horror list is also the minute I saw it I was like oh duh this is also the first time that something super painful was put on screen deliberately. It was real. And I, 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 that to me equated with a director's decision to create a horror movie is I'm choosing to put something on film that I know will distress my audience. Boom. Horror. Horror comes from our society. Yeah. It comes from... Recently, look at in the past 10 years, Columbine. Yeah. 
in 2009, we've seen horror movies that are much different than we did in the 90s. Right. They're just more brutal. Yeah. They're more, the body counts are always higher. Um, no matter what it is, it's just going to be a little bit more in your face. It's yeah. not going to be as subtle as it was in the early 80s and 70s and things like that. And that goes across the board in a lot of different things because, again, I'm sorry, this is just so fresh in my mind. I was just watching this documentary. And they were talking about the fact that Day of the Dead was so huge because of the amount of effort and time and work that were put into every single little effect for all the visual effects and the fact that it was um, phenomenally gory and phenomenally uh, real, like really, like distressingly real. And then you fast forward to 2010 when we have Walking Dead shows up on TV and we get this every single week. I love The Walking Dead. I haven't watched it in years, but I love The Walking Dead since it uses practical fa- uh, practical makeup. Yes. It's very Greg Nicotera of mm-hmm. Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. Love him. All the Friday the 13th movies, I watched a four-hour documentary on this. I made my husband suffer through a four-hour documentary. text after text blaming me <laughs> for these documentaries. I know for a fact that they would have been watched anyway. Maybe not this week, but they would have been watched at some point. Maybe with or without him. Right, that, exactly. If, if he knew, uh, it just kept going on and on. But it was just beautiful. He was a Vietnam vet or um, yeah. a photographer, so he knew what death looked like. Right. Um, and that was just horrible. So that's why in the 80s we start getting more realistic gore effects. Yeah. Um, and the MPAA yeah. was probably different back then, too. And it's very true. Let's go back again. So we were talking about Birth of a Nation. What year was that again? 1915. 1915. Okay. Was there anything else about Birth of a Nation specifically that brought it to your mind for this list before we move on to our next one? I saw this movie at a really young age, and it's always stuck in my mind. It's a it's something a student filmmaker would watch. I highly recommend everybody watch this. Please do not think of these people as heroes. This is right. something just to remind us of the, the horrible pasts and just keep moving forward. This is probably one of the most shocking movies I've seen. Um, probably the most gruesome and brutal, I think, I've yeah. seen. Uh, and that's coming from a movie over 100 years old. Um, yeah, let's go to our next one. Okay. Nosferatu. Yes. I watched that one this afternoon. It put me in a very weird headspace. <laughs> um, Did it seem familiar? Yes. Okay. Because, I mean, it's really hard to talk about this one and not also talk about... Um, is it called Dracula? Yeah. I feel like all the Dracula movies are never actually called Dracula. <laughs> We're going to get to one called Dracula. That's But, like, I watched those in very close succession. <laughs> oh, yes, it was, because it was the Bela Lugosi Dracula, and then we watched Nosferatu in this particular list. And it's hard not to compare them because they're so similar stories. I think Nosferatu's was um, a little bit more engaging to me as a viewer, especially as somebody who doesn't remember the... I didn't remember the Dracula story out of context. I didn't. Um, And so Bela Lugosi's Dracula, you jump right in with your realtors showing up at the... It's a little bit like, what the fuck is this realtor doing? (laughs) In the middle of bumfuck nowhere at this abandoned... Like, I just didn't buy in quite as quickly. Whereas Nosferatu, you start in um, our, our protagonist's home with his wife. And you watch the pain that she goes through as he leaves. And you watch the journey that he takes to get there. And then... I don't know. I, I, I was a little bit more hooked to Nosferatu from the beginning, I think. Well, spoiler alert, they're the same story. Right. Um, name, <gasps> names were changed. Yes. Uh, it's loosely based on Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, they changed the names to prevent a legal issue. 
Um, they got the legal issue because... I was going to say, it's, did they actually get away with that? Because it seems like that's about the only thing that they changed. No, the all, all known prints and negatives were destroyed under the terms of the settlement by the Strokens estate. Okay. Um, but because there are so many prints worldwide, we now still have it to this day. Got it. So if it wasn't preserved in other countries, we wouldn't be seeing this film. Got it. Okay. So... Thank for that, and then it went to the National Film Registry as well. Okay. You liked it, at least. I did. I did. I liked Nosferatu. I liked Dracula. I liked the cinematography of Dracula, um, because Bela Lugosi's eyes, I mean, hello. Terrifying. When's the last time you saw an overture? Oh, my God. Well, I'm probably not the right one to ask, because I end up watching, like, Sound of Music every month. (laughs) And, like, singing Singing in the Rain is, like, one of my top three favorite movies of all time. I literally watched Singing in the Rain six times on a flight to Korea once. uh, And I cried every single fucking time. I'm not kidding. (laughs) I cried every time. Um, So I'm, like... But still, it's... Even for me, it's been a good, like, six months, eight months. It's been a while. (laughs) Like a like twenty thousand leagues into the sea overture, like it takes time to get to the like yeah anybody on screen. That again, no, it's been a while since the um since I've seen anything with an overture and with uh like handwritten title cards for the beginning too, <laughs> hand calligraphied. Some of them had to be redone. So in the process of getting all the restoration pieces, they See, had to get new cards. They just did it very well. They did it very tastefully. I think my Nosferatu one was redone because it was on... I found that one. Spoiler alert, you can find the Dracula, you can find Nosferatu, you can find Birth of a Nation all on YouTube. Or that, or I'm just really good at YouTube. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But the Nosferatu that I watched was a, like, a UHD redo or what, like, remaster. Mm -hmm. And I think the cards were new because it was the... Cards were, like, beautiful and still and nice, and then it was, like, back to crackly. (laughs) (laughs) All the grain in the world. I loved the score of Nosferatu, actually. It's funny that you... like that just came back to me um it didn't stick in my mind as strongly as others because there's other iconic scores on this list but i really 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 liked the orchestral score and i was curious too which one it was because i was scanning through wikipedia reading all the different kind of versions because they keep getting lost (laughs) funny things about the silent era when it's all written down back when people didn't care about films yeah uh, and the score didn't matter because it wasn't part of the movie. Props didn't matter. Yeah. There are very few pieces from like things from uh, like Wizard of Oz left. The whole How sad. I, the whole backlog run down. This is what we talk about on a regular basis. This is similar to what I did with Mina on <laughs> the Croke Patterson episode. Like We talk about portals and demons all the time, so I'm sorry. This is going to be long, and we're going to get sidetracked, and you're going to enjoy it. We'll get through this. We're going to get through this. It's great. So these are kind of the three that we covered for this era. What else What else is important about him? Going back to Nosferatu. Yeah. It's shocking. He's only on screen for nine minutes in this whole film. It's an 80-minute film. Yeah. First off, shocking. These movies, besides Birth of a Nation, apparently, are really short. Yeah. They're like 80, yeah. 60 to 80 minutes. They're barely a film now. Yeah. Something... Well, I wouldn't like one thirty, like one, an hour thirty-eight, an hour forty-five. Yeah, that's like yeah. minimum. I think yeah. even going to theaters now. I was lovely in the one part when I was watching these ones. It's like, oh, I can get through this. <laughs> Dracula. I I started watching it and I I got through most of it. I was like, I feel like I just started. Yeah, it was a really short movie. But Bela Lugosi, what do you think about him? Okay, so I've always been fascinated by Bela Lugosi because 
Um, what made you get into looking at Bella Lugosi before? <laughs> Ghost Hunter, or Ghost Adventures. <laughs> of course. Okay, so Zach Bagans has um, the number one most uh, top-rated uh, museum in the country for the past, like, five years running. It's his haunted museum uh, in Las Vegas. I've always wanted to go, never gone yet. But he has Bella Lugosi's personal mirror on the wall. Oh, my God. Yeah. And a lot of really, really... Like, to put it lightly, a lot of fucked up shit has happened in front of that mirror, including somebody getting brutally murdered while that mirror was hanging on the wall watching the whole thing. Um, somebody claims that somebody reached out of that mirror and strangled them, um, and that's when it came to his museum, is when the family was like, get this out of our house. We should go. We, oh, we should absolutely we should go. go. Oh, we should absolutely go. But that's my... So I what I know of Bela Lugosi is I know of him as Dracula, like this like mystique Dracula, and... I know the paranormal things that have been attached to his personal possessions, and that's about it. This movie is very significant because, for Bela Lugosi at least, right. one, it typecast him. Yeah. He starred in the Broadway play before this, or I don't know if it was Broadway, but the stage production of Dracula as the Count. Mm-hmm. He did so well with filmmakers, just, you know, they... It was easy. It's, it he came with his own cape, probably. I'm sure he did. <laughs> probably came with his own bats that you see on screen, too. <laughs> and he was just perfect for the role. And then yeah. he became very much typecast. And it was sad. Um, he, has, he was a morphine addict, yeah. I read. And he was very much underpaid for the time. I believe that. Versus someone like Boris Karloff, who played Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah. He was very strategic. with. He's very much the Leonardo DiCaprio of our day. He's strategic with what he picks and is interesting. So he's not typecast. Uh, we'll get into another typecast when we get to The Shining. Okay. But I actually liked Dracula better. Did you? Yeah. Okay, tell me about it. I loved Nosferatu. Dracula was just so mesmerizing. Yeah. It was just in a different world. I've seen that movie so many times, and it's like the first time I've seen it every time. It is a visually stronger movie. Absolutely. And it started this, the cra- the monster craze. Yeah. And the formula of the horror genre. Yeah. It's where movies, if they did well, it became a formula within itself. Yeah. So the next movie would do the same type of structure within the story. No, the, that's my high recommend. The visuals on Dracula are stunning. And um, I think super props go to the cinematographer and the lighting designer for that one. Um because of the way that they highlight Lugosi's eyes in particular. But the whole thing is just really well lit. It's very dark. It's very moody. Um, the costume designing is impeccable. That is it, it that is much stronger than Nosferatu. Nosferatu is filmed quite obviously during the day, and they're talking about how it's midnight, um, which is normal of the era for film, but I mean, like, it, it, it's a little harder to lose yourself in the visuals that are being presented, but Dracula is like, okay, well, that's fucking terrifying. It just kind of does it naturally. It was a perfect formula, I think, yeah. for, for Dracula. Nosferatu yeah. was great nine years earlier. So take that into consideration with the production. It's been, had to be refound, reanalyzed, or re, I forget what word it is. I, um, it went to the Library of Congress to get um, restored. Restored, yeah. So you're going to see different coloring. It's not going to be the same. Time, structure is going to be different. There's probably uh, pieces missing, title cards missing. Yeah. So it was hard for that film. But Dracula's just perfect. Yeah. So, yeah. Let's go on to the next one. It's kind of crazy, too, also thinking about these ones, how much harder the modern movie-going audience is to sell. And what I mean by that is the, like, 
willing suspension of disbelief that's kind of become synonymous with what theater is, with what art is, really, but, I, like, in terms of movie, I found myself getting distracted by the fact that Dracula made it across the boat in a coffin and got his coffin into his house while everybody else died. There's, like, little, like, I'm like... That's what you have an issue with in yeah, this movie? That was the thing that was the hardest for me. I was like... <laughs> How the fuck did Dracula get from the ship to the house? Because his guy in one in one movie the guy's insane and the people take him. He's the one that's like his I forget his name. I forget names. That's tr- yeah. but you know what I mean, right? Uh, it's it's interesting to me to think about the fact that that the modern theater audience has to be sold a little bit more aggressively and they'll pick up any little what it told me is that I don't think an audience back then would have had any problem with it whatsoever. This is we are very successful. We're used to everything being handed to us in like the most logical possible way. Because if the audience is like, "Well, that doesn't make sense," people need to be in control. You lose it's, your trust. So yeah, you lose your trust of the storytellers. If people don't know what's going on, um, I I watched the movie Tenant recently. Mm, I haven't seen it yet. Very much that issue. People they don't feel like they're in control of knowing where the story's going or where the story is at the time. They don't know what people are saying. I have a really big issue with that movie. That was Nolan too, right? Yeah, oh, I love that. I have though. a big issue with that because you can't hear a single. It's like listening to Bane talk during oh, the entire no. movie. It's just like someone's muffled it right in your entire yeah. face. It's just uh, Speak pisses up. me off. <laughs> but was there anything else that we need that you wanted to cover with these two? Not for these two. I think nope. we can move on. Do we want to go ahead and take a break before we move to our next era? Yes. Perfect timing. We're gonna take a little break. We'll be back right after this. Hey Paranormal Weirdos, I truly hope you're enjoying this week's episode so far. If you're enjoying When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, I humbly welcome you to consider making a financial contribution to the When Walls Can Talk tip jar to ensure I can continue to create episodes like this one for seasons to come. Your financial support helps to cover operating costs like recording equipment, editing software, marketing materials, music rights, and helps with the purchase of books, historical publications, and research materials to ensure that every episode is as professional and as well-constructed as we possibly can. If you're interested in making a small contribution, and let me tell you that no amount is too little, please feel free to hop on over to PayPal where you can tip us through my email, Jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com or on Cash App through Money Sign Jeremy Hag. That's Money Sign J E R E M Y H A I G. There's also a support link in the show notes for this and every episode where you can support us directly as well. Thank you so much for listening to my little sales pitch and for sticking with me through this episode so far. And now, let's get back to the show. We could put it out at any time of the year. We already started talking about this, so I'm just hitting record. We're back! We're, because we're, this is the one we're most excited about. We're moving into... The 60s? 50s to 60s. The 50s and 60s. So, mainly just the 60s, to be honest. Um, we're going to start with Peeping Tom. I had never seen or heard of this movie before. And I actually started because I was kind of curious what the public sentiment of it was. So I actually went to YouTube first and watched somebody's... Uh, like review response to it not like watching the whole thing through but like a little uh, report on it and I thought it was interesting that he was talking about the fact that it was not 
a hit for the director at the time. It destroyed yeah. his career. And I thought it was phenomenal. And he gave it an A as well. And I felt better about my taste. But I really did enjoy it. I mean, there were some lumpy things in it that um, I was like, oh, I wish that had been like streamlined or tightened or this scene could have lost like 10 seconds or like little things like that, totally. Uh, but there were some really cool um, cut transitions. This movie was funny, too. Yeah. It was really funny. The, the person looking uh, buying porn when the girl comes in. Yep. That was fucking hilarious. It was very it, referential. It was... This movie was banned. This movie had an X rating originally. That's hilarious. I think it was banned in the United States. But I think the best part about the film community is we're now going back and we're, we converse more. We, we um, look back into times that weren't so popular. We're looking at these movies that were cast out, that were banned, that yeah. were they're really influential. I think this is more influential than Psycho. Personally, I could see that. This is the advent of the horror genre. These two films, which are very parallel, by the way. You got... Is it is Peeping Tom our first POV? Our first killer POV on camera? I think so, yeah. I think it did, is. Did you notice how uh, John Carpenter referenced it with the first yeah. shot of Halloween? Oh, totally. I didn't realize that. I watched it today again. For, I haven't seen it in 10 years, probably. It was probably like 14, 15 when I saw it. I want to know what the budget for it was, because one of the first things that I texted you about when I was watching it, because I actually watched this one today, um, I didn't know it, I hadn't heard of it, so it wasn't one that, like, it just made it lower on my list, and now I know otherwise, but... The budget was 135,000 pounds. Okay. So about $220,000. That's crazy, because this is one of the few on this list that was like, oh, they built a set for this thing. And they also put a lot of money into the lighting because the lighting for the movie is punchy. It's saturated. It's colorful. It literally, there are moments where I'm like, is this West Side Story? What's going on? I was watching it with Kevin, um, and he was even like, wow, the colors are The colors amazing. are incredible. Uh, the story was, per- it was great. You it really, was much more engaging. You really start to see the development of framing for the horror genre in this one, too, in terms of wider shots, um... also things coming right at the camera including like hands blocking eyes which I know is very like taboo Mm -hmm. to like put something between your eyes and the camera I love the idea that he wanted to capture the face of death yeah that he wanted to film the reaction that was just brilliant I thought this whole movie was just brilliant I thought the acting was quite good too especially watching it after so long I wanted to go into one of these being somewhat of a newbie yeah and this this was amazing this is probably one of the higher recommends on the film. I'm sorry, on the, the board for me. Yeah, this is probably my favorite on the list. That's really shocking. Yeah. I, I And I think that, I mean, I, I guess it, it was nice to come at it from a complete, like, completely blank slate and from a perspective where I was trying to appreciate all the things that it was and the things that made it what it was. So that, like, might be kind of unfair, but I think it's, like, I think it was my favorite. I really enjoyed it. <sighs> I, I enjoyed the different characters. I enjoyed the girl down the hall. I And it made it that much more interesting to watch her be destroyed by who he was. The human relationships are what made that movie work. Oh, totally. I loved the girl downstairs. I yeah. thought she was a great character. A very out of, out of the blue character. And then the backstory that just yeah. got better and better. It was it's not as subtle as most um, yeah. horror films of the time. Like, Considering Psycho, which is very much... is a subtle, slow burn. Yeah. This is more 
in your you're gonna get a, a death within the first five minutes. Right. And I think this is where the genre for Halloween, yeah, um, even Friday the Thirteenth, that's where it's coming from. Yeah. Of you have to have a good death within the first five ten minutes. And we're still not seeing full gore yet, really. There's not much blood. Yeah. Again, the MPA was much different. This was an X rating. People did not. This it was got not, an X. Yeah, this is when they got the X. Yeah. It's so wild to me. Because even, even the spoilers, 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 even the the main character's death at the very end. I'm really bad with names, so please forgive me. Um, the main character's death at the very end of the movie was um, a little anticlimactic only because of the visual effects that were available at the time. But I also did not see his death coming. I did not see that being like the ultimate culmination of the documentary that he's been filming this whole time. So again, spoilers. He's filming this documentary on a handheld camera where people are killed on camera by a device that's like direct, like killed looking into the eyes of the camera. He's capturing the face of death, what their deaths are looking like. And it, I think that's brilliant too. Yeah. And the backstory of how his father almost did the same thing was just out killing him, beating him. I think that was brilliant, too. It's and the way that they was presented to the audience was smart, too, because it was another one of those where we're learning alongside a character, so we don't think about it as exposition. And it wasn't backless, like, um, flashbacks, like you see now. No. It was done really well with in the film. Like, he was a... Um, they were both cameramen. Yep. It just all made sense. And you're funny. watching the current protagonist reaction to younger protagonist experiences, which is another really interesting... Um, uh, perspective to have as the viewer and the actor I think portrayed it in a way that was different than what I expected him to do which was believable and unique so it was it was really I wanted to understand this person because I didn't know them they were very disconnected from the actual deaths like the deaths themselves didn't matter to them I thought it was really interesting that what mattered to him was the fact that he faded to black wrong at the end of one of them and he's like fuck now I have to go kill another person because I didn't do it right I love how animalistic. No, it's the desire. I, I don't know. Fact that he wanted it so badly yeah. is just baffling. Th- that he would go to whatever length, killing, almost killing the blind woman. Yeah. Who the fuck does that? I loved that scene. I really. Did you I think he was going to kill the mother? I didn't, but I loved the power play. I loved the. It's the sort of scenes that make me as an actor really excited because that's what I used to. It's what I went to college for was to be a musical theater major. It's one of the things that make me really excited as an actor. I'm like, oh, you can do so much with scenes like that because there's so much back and forth. There's so much cat and mouse. There's so much. It, it's just. It's fun. It's fun to watch. I love how there's not a damsel in distress. In no. This movie. Oh, it's so nice to see. Because this woman, she's confident. She knows she's going in there. Yeah. Into that room. Right. And she's figuring out the fuck out. Yeah. And you knew that from the beginning, but I expected her to die. I watched this movie 10 years ago. I still expected the girl. Really? The 21 year old? I expected her to die. I expected either the mother or the 21 year old to go when he said, I need one more. Yeah, that's true. That's and, true. And when that didn't happen, I'm like, all right, he's off in himself. How is this going to happen? And it just, it was, it was. Beautiful. I loved that it was about the fear. And, like, his last thought was, I'm afraid. And I'm so glad that I'm afraid because it's going to look so good on camera. Like, the amount of fucked up at it, that, 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 like, the amount of, like, messed up it takes to get to that point. It's almost um, postmodern, very much, but yeah. in its own genre of building off fear for horror movies. He's yeah. building off fear for this documentary. We're just doing that 
within our own genre now. I have a question for you. What do you think is more relevant now, Peeping Tom or Psycho? In terms of our audience right now, our audience of that's growing up, you and me, 25 to 30, yeah. we grew up with Saw, Hostel, yeah. Blair Witch. We knew what was coming at us. They threw the kitchen sink. Which one do you think is more influential to this day? That's a really, really hard question. And I, I first started leaning towards Peeping Tom because it reflects the current movies that we're used to a little bit more. Uh, it's just a, it's a little closer to what we're used to. However, I'm torn because of one single reason in Psycho. And that's because Psycho killed off its leading actress 40 minutes into the film. And everybody's sitting there in the movie theater like, what the fuck is, like, what do we do now? There's another two-thirds of this movie left. That's the biggest reason that I'm like, I don't know, because Psycho is a little bit less accessible. Do you think it's less people are just going to watch it? Do you think it's more a homework for people? Yes. Than Peeping Tom? I don't know why I say that, because I dug into YouTube reactions for this one, too, because I really, I really do find, I love spending time in YouTube reactions, and I love finding out how people are generally feeling about things I, I that I care about. I really do. It's and so interesting. And most all of them, the literally, not even, like, you don't even have to watch the movie to know this, the titles are like, I watched Psycho, and it's actually thrilling. I watched Psycho, and it's fucking amazing. And it's, it's the surprise factor that I saw in all of these things, where people aren't going and watching them. Good. I love that. But when they watch it, like I watched one, there's a girl named, uh, her uh, YouTube channel is Popcorn in Bed, and she was like, I really, really liked that, and I really didn't expect to. That's the reason that I think I might have to pick Peeping Tom. I'm the same. I don't know that I should, but I would say it's what the it's the answer. I was originally going to pick it, pick Psycho. But I think that was mainly because I'm, I love Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. I think it's... Psycho... I'm sorry. Peeping Tom is much more relevant to this yeah. day. We are getting more kills. We're getting, a, I think, a more in-depth story yeah. than Psycho. A more layered story yeah. than Psycho. Yeah. I think it's just... It's more relevant. You're going to get your kills in the first five minutes. Right. And you're going to get another one within a certain time frame until the end. Right. If you had asked a different question, if you had asked which was more influential over horror, I would say Psycho. Yes. And because I would say, and everybody knows this, and it was something interesting that Elijah Wood said in the documentary that I was watching, kids are, are being raised these days um, making the like slasher knife movements in the air. I'm like waving my hands over my head with a knife. And like singing the Psycho soundtrack along with that action that have never actually seen the movie. It's very it's cuz it's in pop culture. It's a it's a pop culture moment. The nice thing about this the Peeping Tom movie directors are starting to help this. Yeah. Martin Scorsese called this one of the most influential films of his career or that he's ever seen for his career. And that helped spark kind of the ignition for the young filmmakers and yeah. the young community of people who want to go back. I think if you look at these back to back, one has a more broad audience psycho the other one has a smaller audience because we're still finding it right but i think the smaller audience still has a bigger voice it's still a little more influential yeah psycho also was the first time that we really saw the development of i don't even know how the, the series of jump cuts the series of like very abrupt uh rudimentary visceral putting together of like individual frames of film 
to create fear, which was the, like, didn't he call that pure cinema? Oh, yeah. Like, the putting together of various things to to create fear without showing fear on camera. The whole production of this movie is so interesting. There is a movie with Anthony Hopkins and... Helen Mirren. Helen Mirren, thank you. She's the queen most of the time. God, I love her. Um, And it's about the making of Psycho and how challenging this was. Really? She had a, a big influence on it. Uh, Alma Ray, his wife. Uh-huh. Highly recommend that movie. It goes really in depth, but this movie was hard to make from the beginning. So yeah. Go. People did not want to watch this. They called it garbage. They were asking why he's making this, and then he he went down into the visceral fear of people. Yeah. What is most terrifying? Just a person coming into your home, right, and killing you, or in a motel, right, wherever for it is, no apparent reason, for no apparent reason. Yeah, and. We'll see that same thing with Peeping Tom. Those are the things that we're still seeing to this day versus, I think, as much as the monsters we're seeing. Well, Cheyenne's literally talked about on the, on this podcast how, like, if she's in the shower and Psycho crosses her mind, she's not showering anymore. She's done. Like, she's getting out. We'll come back to this later. Um, I'm going to guess people didn't shower for a little bit. No, I'm sure not. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock had very clear instructions on how to show this movie. Yeah. And apparently it just elevated the fear for people okay i would have loved to have gone back okay what was what was involved i have to look back but it was like you couldn't show the movie to a certain time doors open all the lights are up and then gone he had very specific oh interesting i mean that's how i would do it too he always put very um either small or large limitations on his films yeah and this is a good question to ask you moving forward for more of the independent films we're going to go through yeah most of them are do you think it's the filmmaker or do you think it's the budgetary restrictions that make a film a little bit more brilliant, more creative? So, Oh, I think it's always the people. Do you think so? Or do I you, do. I'm on the other end of that point. I think it's the limitations for... Alfred Hitchcock's a great example. For Psycho, he always put limitations on himself. Okay. Or in another movie, he did a 3D, so it would be a limitation. Yeah. It was a gag, but yeah. it still worked. Right. Same thing with John Carpenter, Jaws, Texas Chainsaw. Right. These small budgets, they have to think very creatively versus if you have a big budget, you can do kind of whatever you want. You don't think about the subtle nuances. No, I see that. You make a really good point because I was already thinking about the brilliance of the filmmakers within the context of limited budget. But if you take that limit out of it... I Pie is a great example. I mean, you look at like an example, and we haven't seen it yet, so we don't... I have nothing to talk about, but we're both Lord of the Rings fanatics. The Amazon Lord of the Rings series covering essentially the Silmarillion is one of the... It's not one of the... It is the most expensive television show that's ever been pre-purchased of all time. And I think that they are struggling Mm -hmm. hardcore because of that. They have already fired their entire writing staff more than one time. They have scrapped and restarted more than one time. I think they are struggling because they have... I read somewhere a number of an amount of money that got thrown away on a season that's never going to be aired um, God, so far, and it's astronomical. So that's like the perfect example of big budget getting out of control because I know for a fact that TV show is out of control. It is out of control. And this is also me like praying to God that they get in tro- control because I really want to watch it. <laughs> I've always wanted to see somebody try to interpret the Silmarillion because it's hard to do. Can I ask you... They're doing so many of these TV conversions for these movies. The Equalizer just did it. Yeah. Um, all these different movies that are going into television. Do you like that? 
I'm very it's split. A t- it's a tough sell for me. I like when movies are novelized, actually. I don't like when they're television series anymore. I think there are certain things that should have been a television show to begin with. Harry Potter is one of them. Harry Potter That's is... That's a good idea. Harry Potter is so episodic. I don't think I found a good one yet. Yeah. I... More of a random question, I think. No, no, it's... it's Because it, it's it comes into all of this for sure. Um, so what else did we do? We did we did Pipe, Peeping Tom. We did Psycho. Night of the Living Dead. We did Night of the Living Dead. What do you think? What were your thoughts? It's really hard to cover just how important all three of these were in the limitations that we have. <laughs> <laughs> because I think Night of the Living Dead did a lot. A, Night of the Living Dead established the rules of the zombie. You shoot it in the head... You burn it or pull it apart. Mm-hmm. Like, the rules that we still use in, like, 28 Days Later and, like, 2000s, 2010s, 2020s zombie movies, of which they're not a huge number, but you think, like, I Am Legend, you think all of these movies, they still use the same rules. We were in, if I remember correctly, yeah, we, were in, we were in crazy racial struggles at the time, too, which, which comes across in this zombie, the zombies represent the other. And they probably always will. Look at, um, was it District 18, the one that's, uh, like, not... District 9. District 9. Is that the one where he becomes yep. an insect? It's Neil like Camp did not, a beautiful job. Not subtly referencing apartheid in South Africa whatsoever. No, but it brought it to the forefront. Yeah. Something that we needed to, to hear and, and remember, too, especially in the, those countries. And this was not the very first time we had seen zombies on the screen, I don't believe. I believe there was... Um, there was a few... That, this one just made it a thing. Blew it out of the yeah. water. And this one has really, like you said, really, it's hard to meet in the middle between societal, what's going on, right. to what's going to be on the film. Because it's such, and that I think this is a really important thing to bring up for all horror movies. We were talking about this before we even started recording. The fact that horror as a genre, like, really cannot be separated from the cultural influences that it's expounding upon. In almost every situation. Scariest things are the horrors we see every day. Exactly. They're the ones we are already afraid of. We are going to continue... And I think this is good on us and good on the filmmakers for doing this. We always push the boundary. Or they always push the boundary by asking questions and pissing people off right. a little bit. Right. We're going to bring up subtle references. Uh, I think the Halloween Kills movie has a great reference to our time of wanting to just go out and beat the shit out of somebody yeah. in a mob. You can watch that. It's no, I'm excited to see it because I am. I'll give I you a whole curious. review on it. I think the other thing too is the fact that we had a African American protagonist who kind of rose into a protagonist role, not from the first act, the like quote unquote first act. They rose to protagonist role partway through the movie, which was challenging to viewers on two fronts. One, you have people rooting for an African American on a way on screen that they've never seen. And then you have others who are terrified about the fact that there is a protagonist who is an African-American, which is equal. They're both equally important in this context. Mm-hmm. And then in the ultimate betrayal, your protagonist gets beyond destroyed. I don't like the ending. I don't either. I don't think anybody should like the ending. No, I don't think so either. But, you certainly shouldn't but, feel comfortable with it. But applause to uh, George Romero for doing this. Yeah. It was a time when we needed to see this, I think, too. Yeah, I agree. We always push the boundaries, so I think 
and this was one of the most in, uh, successful independent films of all time. Yeah. With current inflation, it would be about $223 million in 2020. Good lord. That's a really successful That's horror movie. insane. A good horror movie in the 90s made about $20-30 million. I think it also, and it's also hard to, and I didn't know this at the time when I watched it, but now having watched more horror documentaries, I, I also can recognize uh, Night of the Living Dead in its place as a triage with Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead. Like, they, they really kind of, and each one ramped up in its uh, vigor <laughs> horrifying people in terms of the, like what you see on screen. But still, this one was not not gory. This is beautifully shot. Yeah, this is beautifully shot. I think the actors did a great job, and like you, like you said, they were, it was gory. They yeah. were eating people right in front of you. I'm surprised this, the NPA didn't just throw their arms up in yeah. this movie. It's a very simple plot line. In essence, it's six people trying to escape a farmhouse with zombies trying to eat them. I feel like a lot of these movies have really simple premises. It's very Besides simple. Besides the first one, yeah. Three, but no. that's a three a three and a half hour. I'm not going back there. Epic. <laughs> Wagner would be proud. <laughs> no, I really enjoyed it. I fully recognize its importance and how it made it in this list for sure. I think um, it began the zombie trope that's continued to this day. I think he is the father of the zombie movie or of the zombie story. He's so much fun to watch in documentaries yeah. too. Have you ever seen him? Yeah, he, he was in the, the Eli Roth one. He just reminds you of like your crazy uncle yeah. that you you want to invite to Christmas, but it's gonna be a challenge. I can only imagine him pitching these movies to his fellow filmmakers. Like, we're gonna do this thing. Stick with me; it gets better. <laughs> I feel like it's, I feel like it was just manic and screaming yeah. at producers. They're coming to get you, Bob. <laughs> but like <laughs> those lines will never like. I mean, especially if you're a drag race person who listens to Katya and she says it every five seconds. But like, they're coming to get you, Barbara. Is iconic. This just led to some of the most amazing film. I I am Legend is one of them. I love I am Legend. To this day, that movie does stand the test of time. Yeah. And this movie does too. Which and ending do you prefer? Do you know the two endings? I've only seen the I've only seen the one where he gets shot. There's one where he dies. Uh I don't know. Oh okay. no, Night of the Living Dead or in uh, no, no, I am in, Legend. In I am Legend. Oh, I thought he just got blown up. No, there's two endings. There's one where he lets himself get eaten and he puts the uh he puts the serum inside himself, so he turns all the zombies who eat him back. Uh, there's like a there's like a good ending and a bad ending, and I don't remember which one's on like the official one that you rent now. But there are two endings to I Am Legend. If you don't like, go watch them because I see them be a lot. One is a lot more thought provoking, and one is very much more expected. And I think that's exactly why they did it because one was like, okay, that might be a little too far. Well, it's because they've been trying to do a sequel of that movie for like, yeah since it came out. Yeah, I don't know what's going on with that. I stopped following after like 2010 and they, they just haven't done anything with it. <laughs> it's still been in pre-production for like 10 years. Is it Will Smith? I think They've, so. Or have they announced a cast? Probably not. I know it was the woman and it was supposed to be the little girl but I don't... She's probably a woman by now. Yeah. I guess does this take us to break for our era? Is there anything else we wanted to cover before we move on to our next chapter of horror movies? Uh, yeah, I think we need to. We owe a debt to these people. Yeah, these three movies because they very much influence all the genres moving forward. The psychological thriller with Psycho, yep. Peeping Tom with the slasher, and then Night of Living Dead with the beautiful zombies. Yeah, and we're seeing this 
just throughout our culture to this day, we're seeing subtle references. Yeah. Not as much Peeping Tom, but the rest of them. So, yeah, I think I highly recommend all these. These three movies taught audiences what to expect in horror going forward and really did redefine... They kind of redefined a new threshold for what was possible on screen. And I don't even mean in terms of what was possible to get on camera, but what was possible to play to the public. Well, now we can go to the 70s, but I am very proud. I got someone to go back in time. You did? I got one more person at this point. You go, You went back to the 1950. I did. You Look at me go. I am so sorry. Oh, no, it was good. <laughs> that was a lot. It was a really interesting journey, and we're still going, but like it was a really interesting... This is something we were talking about before we started recording as well. I have seen a number of the movies going forward from here from this point on a lot of the ones that we pick a lot will be names that most people are somewhat familiar with holidays uh yes (laughs) and but the thing that i really appreciated the most about this process of going back and rereading or not rereading rewatching and watching stuff for the first time is to start piecing them together into a larger context and piecing them together into a larger timeline and also starting to recognize where uh, different filmmakers' universes were connected that I didn't even know. Like, I knew who individual characters were, I knew who iconic serial killers were, I knew. But being able to put these into the context and appreciate their franchises, it's just cool. It's cool to to appreciate that on a different level than I did with and, the genre before. And some of these were not meant to be franchises. Mm. Psycho, please don't watch any of the, fu- the sequels. Oh, God, no. They're so bad. I, I have never, and I don't think I will. But it was a paycheck for Anthony Perkins, so like, I, I, maybe good on him. Um, and yeah, like Halloween, we'll get to that one. That one supposed to, it was not supposed to be a franchise. It's so sad that Norman Bates was so attractive. He was gay. Mm. Too soon. All right. We'll be back. <laughs> If you're like me and have had an interest in creating your own podcast but don't really know where to get started, let me tell you about Anchor. Anchor is the completely free creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Once you've finished recording, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard across all podcast streaming platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership right from your very first episode. It's everything that you need to make and distribute a podcast all in one place. To get started, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Shall we? Yes, we shall. We have two more eras ahead of us, but you're not going to get a break between. We're just going to go on through the rest of them. Because um, there's only four movies left, so you guys are going to hold on for the rest of the ride. Four and a half. Four and a half. That's true, four and a half. Four and a half and the million other references we decide to drag in here, too, because... We, we, we drift off. We're millennials. Like I'm a, <laughs> I guess I'm the only... Wow, I'm the millennial. I rant. I'm a millennial, too. I'm the chill on the tail end. That's true, you are on the tail end. I'm on, like, the... T- yeah, anyway. We ramble. Here we go. What's next? My favorite Halloween. This is this has been. I've been waiting for this. Your favorite movie since I met you. Ugh, I have overwatched. I own this in every single way, shape, and form, and it's just been so influential in my life. Ugh, if you didn't know what we're talking and the about. best part is we had a new one come out this year. To like com- just now, just now to commemorate this. Yeah, like days ago, Friday, like like, like literally Friday a week at ago, ten fifteen. I watched that thing. 
Peacock. Can we just talk about the fact that it is... Correct me if I'm wrong. The director did... He directed. He did the soundtrack. In which version? This one? I'm talking the... Yeah. Uh, John Carpenter? Yeah. Yes, John he Car- did. He did, like, everything. John he? Carpenter? Yes, he actually just... He does solo albums. For is it really? Yeah, for um, music that he... For movies that he never made. That's hilarious. And honestly, it's pretty good. That's hilarious. <laughs> he's really good, and he's done a lot of the, the the new ones, all their scores, too. He's, he's very talented in that, and I think he... Some of his best films go with his best scores. Oh, this the, score is, is, the score is part of what makes... Michael Myers, Michael Myers. This is why I was shit my pants at six years old. But that's the other thing, too, which is, and any movie soundtrack nerd will say the same thing, some of the strongest scores are the simplest. Psycho is simple. Well, mm-hmm. the, 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 the iconic theme, obviously, which really only shows up, like, once in the whole movie, right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, maybe once or twice. Yeah, it's not, that. like, but it's it's simple and it's punchy and you remember it. And Halloween, I think, is the same way. Did you ever see the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I did. It was years ago now, so I like watching the documentary that I was watching reminded me of more of it than I remembered on my own. This and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think, had awesome scores. Yeah, they did. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is just like clinging pans and yeah, and shit in the kitchen. Yeah, this one's just so simple, yeah, and effective, and it's it gets down to the core of your your horror and this, and my. This one's much different than Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street because this is just a random, crazy guy going into your home with a butcher knife and trying to kill you. Yeah. This can happen really anywhere in any time period to this day. Like, if you don't have front pointer, like, <laughs> safe light, get it. Simply it, safe. Sponsor me, please. <laughs> God. <laughs> I need more sponsors. Hashtag sponsor. Not right. Sponsor. <laughs> Will be. But uh, I remember one of the things that that was really interesting too is that Michael Myers is so iconic. Like you hear the you hear the name, you see an image, right? But in the Netflix documentary, they were talking about the the journey of picking the different masks, trying different masks out on for the character, and the one that they settle on was not first choice. Yes, this is a off the shelf Don Post um, William Shatner mask. They pay like a buck fifty, maybe two bucks for. And they White paint it, on it. Cut the hair. Sprayed it black. Open up the eyes, and that Done. was it. And it's the most it's iconic. Haunting. It's so haunting. It's the expressionless nature of his character. Well, also the same thing is the fact that he doesn't speak. And who do you remember who who played his bo- who was the actor who played him? I, I forget. Nick Castle. It was like literally just somebody on set, right? They're like, "Do you want to be the? Do yeah. you want to be the shape? He is the shape and the, the new shape too." They, he came back to play the shape in some uh, scenes in the new film. Because he did not have the name Michael Myers in the original script. He was just the called shape. the shape. I think that's the most effective thing in the oh, world. Oh, totally. Loomis describes him as the shape of evil. And whatever that shape may be, whatever form it takes, he, it's a, a person. That's yeah. the shape of evil. It's just man. And if that's not daunting or if that's not scary as fuck, I don't know what it is. Yeah. Because it's personifying life as it is. Yeah. It's a crazy motherfucker. It could be anybody. Yeah. And this one's just taking the shape of evil. It's maskless. It's emotionless. I love how they decided to not show a single eyeball. Yeah. They didn't show the whites of anything. That was brilliant. Yeah. Because it makes it more hollow. It makes it more detached. It's also 
What what was the year of the first one? Was that 78? 78. Mm-hmm. I'm so proud of myself. I'm so bad with dates whenever I remember a date. I'm surprised. But there also was, uh, I forget, we're right around the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And it's also an interesting commentary about the dangers within our society now. I don't think it was ever intended, but it's an interesting it's an interesting reference and I'm not directly correlating the two, but it is an intri- intriguing I think the difference between this one and anything else is that back in the day, I and I'm not this old, but back in the 70s and 80s and even before then, after World War II when these communities and these homes and these towns were built, these different uh, neighborhoods it was a safe place. Yeah, idealistic. It wasn't the city where the crime and yeah. everything happened. This was a safe space where nothing was really going to happen. It's it what was... comes to mind when you say Americana. When you think of a safe place, yeah. you're not in an apartment building. Quintessentially not... American is like suburban. Your farm home. Yeah, exactly. And the white picket fence and the big backyard and the tractor and the, the, the like American dream. And for this time, you're not safe. Yeah. Everybody's a, t- a, a victim. And very much, yeah, comment on the Vietnam War. It was the draft. Yeah. Everybody was a victim of it. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, evil. It, 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 the other thing that's so quintessential about the birth of the slasher films in the slasher, like, subgenre is the the body count. <laughs> Look at the body count at the time of the Vietnam War. It really begged the question of the time, outside of the movie, who's the shape of evil yeah. at that time? What, and what is, is this it, all for? What is the shape of evil? Is it us? Is it them? It was begging that question. And I think we beg the question in the newer type of genre we do. Yeah. Even in paranormal. Which we is... We lose our morals. Right. And I, I bet you, honestly, if one of the filmmakers were to listen to this conversation, they would laugh because they're like... They'd probably be like, that's not what we were thinking at all. But it's because it was so much a part of what the rebellious teenage indie film scene was about that they probably wouldn't have even thought of it. Like, it wasn't... Like, they didn't sit down and say, hey, let's make a commentary. It was just, let's make this kind of movie, and this is what birthed out of that. I would love to know if that's true, if if it was a commentary or not. Because John Carpenter and his then-girlfriend, I think Deborah Hill... Yeah. They were hippies at the time. Totally. So I think if anybody was probably making a commentary, it would be him. Yeah. Um... But Toby Hooper is a great example of that with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That was very much a commentary on the Vietnam War. Very much the time. Hey, Grace, how's your dinner? We're not going to stop for you. They're going to listen to a cat eating in the background. The reality is they probably honestly can't hear him because there's a sound abatement wall behind him. But continue. We're going to pretend. We're going to pretend that my cat's not eating in the background. Breaking the fourth wall. And this movie also began the trope of the virginal girl gets away. Yeah. If you don't have sex in a horror movie, you win. Yeah. You make it to the end. At least you hope you do. It's so true. It's such an interesting, uh, like the final female, the surviving woman at the end who makes it to the end despite all odds. Well, she probably gets hella hacked up because they all get like hella bloodied up in these movies. Oh God. Oh <laughs> God. Yeah. Especially now, if that girl didn't die. At least with one limb severed off. Yeah. You're not doing your job. Yeah. But I think the reason I like this movie so much is also because of Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. It's just... She has this way. Uh, John Carpenter used her her as an homage to Janet Lee, Mm -hmm. Her Her mother. Her mother in Psycho. I love that. I love the correlation. I didn't actually put that together until doing the research for this. I didn't really realize that. 
Okay, I have a question, and let me know if you know who he is. Why did Donald Pleasance do this movie? This was a really independent film. Yeah. This was a low budget. I remember here from, like, The Great Escape. It's something that the Netflix series covers in great detail, actually. And I don't remember all of the ways. It was a, it was a conflict. It was a, he did not want to make, Apparently, he hated every second on the film. He hated all of his directions. He I wanted that. He wanted to take his character a completely different way, and they wouldn't let him. He um, described Samuel Loomis um, as the Van Helsing character yeah. to Michael Myers. Yeah. He Dracula. he uh, hated his time on set, and it's really interesting because now it's like he had this attitude that he like had other places to be, and at the time he did career wise, he absolutely had other places to be than than doing this. But by the time we get to Halloween Six, yeah, I don't know if that's going to be the reality. That was the end. That was the last. That one. was his last. That was the last one. one. We'll get to that. that, but it starts off with um, in memory. Of yeah, him. that's yeah. right. I th- I think he's one of the most strongest characters because if you don't have somebody screaming how horrible and how how dangerous this guy is, it doesn't bring the malevolence of like what you're coming for. So yeah, you have this guy going into town, riding in there with the sheriffs, and just saying how scary this guy is, and you should be afraid. Right. And they're not wrong. I watched this with my uh, was my cousin. He's a couple years. He's one year younger than me, and he was like. It's not that interesting. It's like, why? The body count. Yeah. There's only three people that die in this. Yeah. Three or four people that die in this. And I kind of agree. And like I said, when we get into the the eras, Columbine definitely changed the yeah. way we shape everything. It's How we visualize a kid that who kind of kills one person, his, his sister, is not that scary Yeah, as someone who kills... Uh, a school full of people. Yeah. And, and I think that, that's the horrible part of it. And this is also where Jamie Lee Curtis comes into play a little bit too because I think part of what she put on screen that was so unique. The Scream Queen. Yeah, and she also, well, here's the thing. She was I literally in the documentary that I was watching. She's like, I got to my first take of that shot and she's like, I've never screamed in my life. She's like, I have literally no idea how to do this. And she just did it and that's what happened. But she also has this quality of when the movie was in movie theaters and she walked across the street which by the way we can't walk away from this movie without talking about Panaglide because aka Steadicam because I can't like that's one of the huge things but when she's walking across the street from one house to the other everybody in the in the theater is screaming don't go in the house don't go in the house and it's because she brings this quality of not only just the like innocent horror victim which is a trope but also this one that you want to cheer for. She's the mother. She, you want, yeah, you want to protect her. It's, it's also interesting because they literally came into this movie of like, what happens if you're a babysitter and a murderer comes in? Like that was the initial idea for the script is what happens if you're a babysitter and somebody walks in to kill you? Like this then what a, do you do? This has originally to be called the babysitter murders. Yes, that's right. I forgot about that. And do you know how bad this movie would have taken? Oh, it's so bad. It's so simple. It's so... I, I, to be honest, I didn't like the name of the movie when it first came out. Yeah. Like, when I first watched it. Yeah. When it first came out. Um, but now I think it's a marketing fucking Oh, it's incredible. Line. It's incredible. It's amazing. It also led to the decline of things like, you know, April Fool's Day. Right. Um, Black Christmas. Every holiday we've got that a slasher. Vicious. New Year's Evil. Black Christmas is vicious. Pumpkinhead. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Um, uh, wait, there was one other thing on that I wanted but to But yeah, the, the, the steady cam shots. Yeah. I think 
and that's a uh, that's I think one take the beginning of this movie. Yes, we yes. start with the little, shot. We start with what we think is a person, is a, is a grown man stalking into the home, putting on the mask, and the hand was Deborah Hill. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's harder to tell. I think mm-hmm. even when we try to analyze it, yeah, it's just so effective, and he doesn't look at her when. And I don't know if that was a budgetary reason, mm-hmm. but. He's looking at the knife. I don't know if that's to take it out of his own... Do you want me to shatter that shot for you for a second? It's not going to, like... I think it's going to increase your appreciation. Yeah, it is. And the camera on is the cut. And I forget the reason. It's in... Again, it's another thing that they cover in the Netflix documentary. There's a reason for it. It has... It's purely, um, like, practical. Like, practically doing the shot. And I forget what it was. But, like, the, the putting the mask on was... A, a means to fixing a problem where the shot was originally intended to be without, but it's one of those things where it's like it was the best addition, and that's why I asked you the question of like, is it budgetary, or is it what's better when when you have the limitations? No, it's of being it, no, it's so it's, true. Look at things like Jaws. If we saw the shark more, it would have been right. less scary. Yeah, that's it. Just begs the question, I guess. And you know what else has been kind of. Percolating, percolating to my mind as we've been talking about this. Please tell me. One of the things that I think is more scary than the monsters, because at this point we've already started to see gore on screen, and that's no longer that's no longer as shocking. I mean, it's still shocking, but it's not as shocking. I see directors and filmmakers leaning into the fact that the scariest thing about these situations truly is the choices that we'll make in these moments. And the true human nature that comes into play, both positively in our protagonists who rise to occasions. I'm talking like um, Sigourney Weaver and Aliens, like Bad Out of Hell. Come, like, love that you brought that movie up, right? Thank you for calling it a horror movie. But, uh, but like, uh, yeah, I I would say so. But like in this case, uh, our protagonist rises to the occasion, gets fucking guns, goes pew pew pew, and gets rid of them. In other situations, we see people letting other people get murdered or like the choices that we're willing to live with is what's actually scary about these movies and I think that's where some of the earlier horror films came did it better at least Uh, Halloween's more subtle than and they're better kills they're more logical kills than you're gonna get with uh, Silent Night Deadly Night yeah or The Town of Dreaded Sundown or something like that you're not gonna get anything that's sure everybody, <laughs> <laughs> or like Freddy versus Jason. It's just a, yeah. it's a bloodbath. Ever here, it's more realistic. It's more, it's more thought out. I guess yeah. more methodical, versus you're just gonna fucking kill anything. I mean, I can't think of a better word to describe our next movie than methodical. But are we ready to move to our next movie? I feel like we could talk about Halloween for literally like four I episodes could, easily. I really could. I'm I, trying to hold ourselves back. I. One thing I want to bring up is just the ending. I think it's the scariest part is that's the true. At large, that's true. We're used to it now because it's like half the time, we're like he's not going to be there. He's not. Oh, yep. Yeah, but look, he's not there. <laughs> but then that was not that was not new, and or that was that that was very new. That was not normal. The scariest thing is people walking out, and yeah. the killer's still at large, and Jamie Lee's there just crying. And it was the boogeyman. It yeah, it really was. And I think that's just scary as fuck. Yeah. To this day, I love watching this movie. Anytime Horror has more, for, for very obvious physical reasons, more bad endings than good. And I think this was the era where that was really established. 
the everyday uh, horrors of life just don't end when yeah when there's a very bad. strong chance you're leaving this theater without the the antagonist being removed being and, <laughs> being dead <laughs> and we would never have had a sequel if it wasn't for Dino De Laurentiis yeah we can move on to the next my favorite director of all time The Shining The Shining I did know that as well Stanley Kubrick. We have some backstory for this one uh, with the podcast, as the season finale for season one was the whole true story of the Stanley Hotel and Stephen King's overnight um, that imp- that inspired the novel and inspired the stories that followed, all based off of uh, true emotions, I'll say. <laughs> uh, and spoiler, this was not filmed at the Stanley. It was not. It, it was, was not. not. Uh, Stanley Kubrick cherry-picked all hotels all across the world that he liked and found a red bathroom he liked and all these different things and he just built his own hotel I mean he's a guy that likes what he likes he but likes it, it right it would also be the most expensive thing in the world yeah he's a slow man to the production I think he only did like 10-15 films for a reason he put his actors through hell and Speaking this movie is not good for women empowerment Shelley Duvall gets brutally just tortured on this set. Yeah. I feel bad for Olive Oil. Yeah. It, she's just terrible. Her her acting in the film's fine. Yeah. She's a, she's she's a giving, goddess, but she, like... She's Olive Oil in, yeah. in Popeye. Yeah. It's probably her only claim to fame, I think. <laughs> um, besides this movie. She, yeah. She just wanted to be tortured on this film. Yeah. And I feel bad for her every second she's on the screen. You can see it in her face. It's very real have to you, her. Have you seen the back, the making of? I don't know that I have, actually. Stanley Kubrick's daughter made a documentary about the making of. Oh, God. And he's that just... Would be traumatic. It really is for her. She she got just yelled at and yeah. screamed. Very belittling, and it was horrible. But she gives the performance she can give. Yeah. That's the reason I like her in this movie. Yeah. She's give, giving the best performance based on the limitations she's yeah. giving. She does, and she does get to that point. I think one of my biggest issues with Jack Nicholson's performance is the fact that there is no real development. We're just kind of in madness, and we stay in madness. You know, I had a conversation about that with somebody else, too. It was, he didn't go anywhere. He was he didn't always go anywhere. kind of crazy yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. We didn't trust him from the beginning, where I think it would be so much more terrifying to watch him reach where he reached in his role, because the acting's phenomenal. It's just, it's at a 10 the whole time, and I would have loved to be terrified as this seemingly sane individual plummets into complete and total madness, and we didn't really get the opportunity to watch that, too. That's not to say that the movie isn't, like, wildly uncomfortable from beginning to end. I mean, that goddamn DSRA theme is enough to haunt anyone's nightmares. I love that he uses classical music. Yeah. He, Simply I, alone. I can go on and on about Stanley Cooper too. No, it's, a, it's um, an incredible movie. This film was, it was a long production for everybody. Yeah. He did not like Stephen King at all. No, no. <laughs> Stephen, and Stephen King, King did not like the movie either. You know what? Stephen King got his shot to make The Shining. <laughs> there is a television series, people. No, there isn't. Don't go watch it. <laughs> you can buy it in Canada. The Kubricks made a, made a stipulation when they did the sale mm-hmm. of um, because he's The Shining. Because he's smart. You can't have any U.S. DVD release. It. Um, but that's beside the point. You're not Stephen missing Stephen Ki- he got a real American novelist, he said. He did. Um, 
her name is Diane Johnson, of all people. I don't know who the fuck that is. Um, maybe she did something great. Maybe she didn't. <laughs> I have no fucking idea. But he didn't want to pick Stephen King. Yeah. Um, and it begs the question. And they wanted to do this, too. And it wasn't until one scene. Is there ghosts or is just Jack insane? Yeah. Which one do you believe? Um, I believe there are ghosts. I believe the 217 woman is a ghost. I believe the bartender is a ghost. Uh, there are theories that he's he started out crazy, and this has just all been a malevolence of his own mind. I mean, I could see that too. I could totally, I could comprehensively go either direction. Honestly, I like the ghost story because I like ghost stories. I'm there <laughs> with you. Yeah, I don't think it'd be as effective. As yeah, it is. but I think it's more effective having the more open ended. Agreed. Oh, totally. And uh, I think it was maybe Kubrick, but. It wasn't until he was stuck in the pantry yeah, that uh, they had to admit, all right, there's ghosts here. And we have to also remember the fact, I was just thinking about this too because we didn't really talk about this a ton with Halloween yet and I kind of want to talk about the two together on it. The fact that at the time, movie theater goers didn't have precedent for what to expect at the end of some of these shots. So like you're thinking about, or I'm thinking about the, the Steadicam long shot with his son on the tricycle that ends in the iconic twins at the end of the hallway shot. But for an audience member, you've A, never seen a shot in one take go on this long. You've never seen something follow something so smoothly, so you don't know to expect coming around this corner, boom, you're going to... Like, we as a viewer now are like, oh God, something's going to be at the end of one of these hallways. Which one is it? That's the cliche. They didn't have that then. That wasn't the cliche yet because Steadicam was so new. Stanley Kubrick did just an amazing job in this whole thing. And you said it yourself. With that shot, have you noticed how expansive this whole place looked? This looks like the biggest hotel I've ever seen. Yeah. And it wasn't real. Yeah. It it was all just stages and yeah. sound studios. And it almost makes it claustrophobic to a certain point yeah. as well. Like, it makes you really feel that you're alone and, and stuck there yeah. with this crazy father. Oh, it's such a good movie. And I also... And it's so different. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, 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 no. It is very different. It's a very different energy. It's the quietest of horror movies. It's different energy from when you watch it, too, in yeah. your own timeline. I think the as you grow up, you have a different... Not a love for it, but you have a different connection with it, I think. Yeah. You're little... You, you reflect with Danny. Some people do reflect with Wendy as the... Yeah. I don't know of any more yeah. since women started divorcing their husbands in the 80s right you see yourself or it changes yeah is it Jack's crazy is it just a father it seems a lot more possible for anybody it's simpler when you're younger I think it's just a father's trying to kill you when you get older is it Jack is it ghosts you're asking more questions to yourself right but it's still a good movie no matter what you see yeah or which way you see it. And I feel like everybody has... We covered this when we talked about the Stanley on season one. Um, everybody has a story with watching The Shining, or I feel like a lot of people do. Like, I have mine. I just have, like, really warm, fuzzy, nostalgic memories of the uh, one particular time that I watched it. Um, Cheyenne was my guest that episode. She had a particular drunk story where she drank a, lot, drank a whole bottle of wine to cope with it because she doesn't like horror movies. And her friends talked her into it, but... I, I'm sure you would say something similar of just like every time you watch The Shining, it's like a warm and fuzzy memory. Well, being a horror movie, 
Um, yeah, from the from the point where the boom boom. Yes. Yeah, it's like it's a. You know, you're in for a great movie. Yeah. You have a great ride for the two and a half hours it is, and it's just so engaging. It's 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 pretty fantastic. And this is where Jack Nicholson became a typecast. Yeah. The of the angry, crazy. Yeah. Just guy. Although he was in Cuckoo's Nest, I think before this, he won an Oscar for that. For Christ's sakes. This was a great advent into more psychological and paranormal. But it did lead into more of the recent paranormal movie. Especially things it has a direct influence with um, Ryan Murphy's American Horror Story. Yes. No, oh, for sure. Especially the first season. Oh, absolutely. Um, And yeah, paranormal activity, there is hints of it. There's just, it's less of a story. Yeah. Stanley Kubrick was very high on doing a horror um, he was offered like a psychological thriller. He was just—he really was—he was a guy that liked what he liked. He liked the genres that he wanted to do, and he—he he was big on doing books that were not as well known. So, like Clockwork Orange is, yeah. It, uh, Anthony Burgesson is not a very well-known book. It was actually banned. It was controversial. He liked doing things like that. So, working with Stephen King, or sorry, working off Stephen King's work was new for him. So that was really interesting. Hmm. So he took that and made it into something more logical. It made it something more appealing to the masses. Hmm. It kind of flopped. Hmm. But now is, I think everybody knows it. Oh, it's a staple I think now. Everybody, I would love a tattoo of Jack in the Snow. Yeah. This is high up there on the list, I think, for me. These are all... Oh, absolutely. I think the more I watch some of these, the better they get to. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that for Shining, for sure. All right. Scream? Scream. I mean, most of you had to assume we were going to talk about Scream. This was the movie, a horror movie made by horror movies for horror movies. Starring Drew Barrymore for five seconds. Or this is a horror movie for filmmakers made by filmmakers for filmmakers. Yes. This was directly meant for the the smart audience that wasn't running upstairs into the closet to hide from the the monster. Yes. No, No offense to Jamie Lee. No shade on her. Let's go outside. You know what you know what you know at the time. <laughs> if he, he can make it out the window, you could. Yeah, too. Um, but yeah, this was this was also the rebirth of Drew Barrymore yeah. after her stint with drugs and and that was that's right. It. No, it's really it's it, but it's funny because you forget the context of it now. Everyone's like it's starring Drew Barrymore for like five seconds, but it's starring Drew Barrymore. I think she had ET. But there was a it. there was a there was context here. It was kind of a big deal. And this was not a good thing to be. She she made it f- like fun and yeah. famous to be the first kill. Yeah, it's now a thing. It's a trope. It's something that um, young actresses or anybody just wants to be the first kill. Yeah, it's most iconic. <laughs> And she made it iconic. She was smart. She was witty. She was funny. Yeah. She talked back. I love how she referenced Halloween. Yeah. Thanks, Kevin Williams. Yeah. Uh, he would go on to do Halloween H20. Uh-huh. He was the screenwriter. Um, and this was a great year, too. It came out in 1996. It's my birth year. It's that like, was three. I don't remember it, though. Baby, baby right? Dear. Oh, I just aged myself. Whoops. <laughs> this m- movie saved horror. You yeah. watched Halloween 6, right? The Curse of Michael Myers. I did. I did, per specific instructions. And I will say it was on in the background, and I didn't... I, I watched it. I feel like I know everything that happens. I was not phenomenally engaged. I did not believe that Michael Myers got up and walked away after being bashed in the head with a pipe. Um, 
this came out a year before Scream, and this was the death of horror. I I could I can see this how was to... Jason was body hopping and going to hell and and eating other people. It was it's just never gonna end. And then he went to space a few years later, so like going downhill even worse. Thankfully, they stopped after this. Like this was the worst of the series, but this has Paul Rudd. Yes, that I thought was Paul hilarious. Rudd from This Is Forty. This was before he even did um, uh, Clueless. This is when he was attractive. That sounded way more aggressive than I meant it to be. <laughs> but he was like a stereotypical. Uh, what I mean is like he could be cast in a, like a a casually sexy way. Whereas now he's cast in this like very relatable comedic way. That's what I mean by that. He got. He was very still. He was very um, stuffy. He was sexy crazy. What movie were you watching? No. No. Oh, I thought he was sexy crazy. In like a like like not like no. I just thought he was like okay. I like want to trust this person and I can't. The best part of that movie was the opening sequence because it felt very, like, Soviet Russia bunker. And I was like, oh, interesting. Okay, we're going, like, larger scale. And then none of that made it through the rest of the movie. Simple plot when you watch the original Halloween. Yeah. It's really simple. It's just Michael Myers is going to come to a random stranger's home and kill you. Yeah. So random. This one has, like, runes involved. This one? He's in a cult. Yeah. Now, I know that I'm not probably going to go watch it again after watching it the first time. <laughs> All right. What else about Scream? I think, are we ready to move on to our, our no, final official we selection? We still got to talk about Scream. What do we got? What do we got? Talk to me. This creates the rules for horror movies. It's true. It's, it defines it. It creates the rules. It is kind of the, the, t- the showrunner for what to do next in the modern horror movies. It's creating a sense of logical... Uh, intelligent characters that yeah. can actually get away from a besides Rose McGowan that can get away from a, a mass murder. This is me and this is uh, Kevin and I's favorite movie because we love we love it so much but we also tear it apart. Yeah. Oh totally. I was we, gonna, totally. We tear this thing to shreds. Um, it's a cult favorite but it's not perfect. I love Billy Loomis. Uh, Skeet Aldrich is amazing looking. Especially back then, Billy Loomis, he could climb at my window. Oh, yeah? Yeah. If if Scream had not come out, if Wes Craven had, didn't, had not done this, uh, probably, horror probably wouldn't be in theaters. It day. rejuvenated it with some modern sensibility. It, was bringing, it wasn't bringing the same tropes. It wasn't right. bringing the same... I think we were all tired of Chucky and, and Michael Myers and all these different right. characters. We know what they do. We know what they look like. We know what they sound like. Yeah. And it was just... People weren't going... Movies that were making 40, 50 million at the box office yeah. originally back in the 80s, when these things were new, they're making like 10, 15 million. Yeah. Total, not not during the entire box office. Right, right, right. So that's... It It really showed where it was dying. Yeah. And if it had not been for Scream, we wouldn't get H2O, and we wouldn't have horror to this day, I truly believe. I think the factor, too, of, the, of Scream, while not being full, like, scary movie... It was also making fun of itself in a, in a very smart, Meta. intelligent, yeah, in a very, very like self referential, um, using its own tropes against itself and like referencing its tropes at times. And it made it a little bit more like, okay, we can all buy back into this a little bit. Now it's more of a cliche within a cliche. I am yeah. very scared. I am fucking petrified for the new one to come out. Yeah. 
it's coming out in January. Nothing good happens in January. Hello, it's my birthday. Nothing good in the movie theaters happens in January. January is the worst. Um, Because all the holidays are over and it's just like a month-long adrenaline letdown. uh, Studios call it spring cleaning. Yeah, put everything out in the spring. That's that's true because it's not Oscar contender. It's not Oscar contender at that point. Or a box office success in the summer. Because Oscar bait is like Christmas Day release. Like 99%. Thanksgiving to New Year's. Yeah. Yeah, normally. So... It's literally saying, hi, I want an Oscar. Please consider me. (laughs) We were the lowest category. But I do think that Scream does set the stage for our final film that we're talking about today, and that's Blair Witch Project. Yes! We just watched this together not long ago, and I'm curious what you thought watching it again this time. I've watched it again. Did you really since then? Yeah. Oh my god, I can't with you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, what did you think? What is your thoughts on it? Did you know, at first, when I first saw it, I was in high school, actually. Uh, I, it took a while to see this movie. I didn't know what the fuck it was. Yeah. I actually never heard of it um, until freshman year. And then I was undecided. Yeah. I was like, is it a better trope, or is it a better movie? Do you want to know why is I it- think it's up, like, this movie, Blair Rush Project, is between a rock and a hard place? Because movies like The Ritual exist. Which take everything, and ri- The Ritual is like one of my other absolute favorite scary movies. It's on Netflix. It's, if you want to talk old Norwegian magic and how terrifying old Norwegian magic is, go watch The Ritual. It takes everything that the Blair Witch was and supplies visuals for the rest that we didn't get before. And I think that's why it's really hard to, I watched it again with us the other night, and I was a little bit disappointed because it wasn't as scary as I remembered it being. Granted, I know that that's all standing on the back of the marketing that was done at the time as, like, a, this was this is footage that was found in the woods kind of thing. It was found footage. People yeah. Thought, people thought it was real. 40%. It was a, there was a poll. Yeah. 40% of people thought it was real. Didn't, weren't the actors kind of left out of it, too? Like, shit was being done to them by the crew, and they weren't filled in on... I think this is up there with Stanford Prison Experience with the amount of psychological oh, bullshit. Oh, that, that movie is... With... These filmmakers horrific took tactics of yeah that were um, they used in the military. They give them less food. Yeah, they would get them up earlier. They would spin them around. They would do anything to to scare them, and it's kind of brilliant. Yeah, because not for nothing, when you have a shitty actor, you kind of have to do something to make it more interesting or yeah. make them more believable. And fear is easier, I guess, to to get it. something real. Yeah, to get yeah. something real, and they did a very very um. Strategically, I think. Stanford Prison Experiment experiment is literally blocked from my brain because I think it's the most traumatized I've ever been walking out of a movie experience. That was, that was a brutal movie. That was brutal. That was above, for me, like, that's above Human Centipede. And Human Centipede is, like, one of the worst cinematic experiences I've ever had. I've seen that once, and I will never... Somebody made me watch that on a date as a joke. And I didn't catch Tell on... you. I didn't catch on to the joke, so we catched, kept watching it, and he didn't say anything. Please tell me you didn't go out for a second date. No. Tell me. That's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> That's, there's different reasons behind that, but... Um, Choices. Hi. <laughs> I know. Thank you. <laughs> but that's the thing, is I think Blair Witch stands... It, it's, like, not fair to compare them because other movies have come along since then that have supplied the rest of what Blair Witch was so iconic for not showing. What's amazing about this is it's not really a script. No. There was no script. These kids really just went out into the woods and 
From here on out, I shoot without a script. Come on, rent references. I would have been scared, though. Like, yeah, these, no, that's These terrifying. filmmakers had no money. They were probably using borrowed... Like, they make a mention of... Um, they're borrowing the camera and they have to get it back on money. Yeah. I, can, I actually believe that. Oh, sure. I can actually believe that if they went into the woods and if they dropped that camera, if it rained, yeah, the film exposed. This was film. Yeah. This was digital camera. Yeah. This was every which way you could possibly go wrong. And, like, you, like we can't underplay the fact that Blair Witch Project terrified audiences around the globe when it came out. I'm very picky about found footage. Yeah. As I mentioned, I liked As Above, So Below. I think that's brilliantly done. It's really good. I'm not a filmmaker, so you can do whatever you you want. No, same. And, and, and like, like, we've given a lot of criticism, and this is just criticism coming as an audience, and also as somebody who likes to try to look at these critically, because I also think that... These aren't perfect films. No. And also, we love them for their imperfections and for the fact that they are unique in their own individual way and that they each were kind of pioneered by a crew of illustrious, adventurous, um, devil-may-care. I think the scariest part of this movie is looking up her nose when she's crying. Yeah, that that one shot. This movie, we would not have things... um, like the gallows we wouldn't have the gallows we wouldn't have paranormal activity we wouldn't have any of it i'm not a huge found footage fan this is probably one of the better ones uh i'm giving it more of a chance i yeah. think since this movie since rediscovering it um but i've watched this a couple times and i i love this movie yeah the way it's no shot. it's iconic um and i couldn't imagine being the filmmakers trying to get people just to yeah you know sticks i can't what happens if um someone really got hurt yeah but I love the the point of you can't get lost in America anymore. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a little funny. No, it's it's true. Funny jab. What a journey we've been on between all of these and how it's hard to distill the development of um, like a massive genre and a multi-billion dollar industry down to just a couple movies. But I do think that this is a like looking at documentaries like the history of horror one Almost everything that we've talked about was in that series because of how seminal it was, how uh, well, good. what a landmark it was. And I think that this is a really good list for anybody out there who's either new to horror or wants to dig deeper into what the genre of horror is trying to do within the film universe. These are really good ones to start with. So I think you came up with an incredible list. Yeah, I think we're seeing a rebirth of horror since these movies. I agree. I Um, agree. It really was hard to to narrow it down. I had to look at things from a pop culture standpoint as well as a a cultural standpoint of where we're at as a nation, where we're at in the world, um, where horror is at. Yeah. We went from the early 1900s when... the war was ravaging and where all these German expressionist filmmakers were coming over and we get Nosferatu. Yeah. World War II happens and we get Peeping Tom, Psycho, we're back at home and that's the horrors of our inside, our own culture. Exactly. What's at the home base? And then we're broadening it. Yeah. What's the horrors that we we don't see, we don't feel, we can't... In our nightmares. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking so much time to help me just kind of break these down and pick them apart and think about what how they work and where they come from um before i let you go today is there anything you want to plug is there anything should our, our listeners come and find you or follow you anywhere i'm not a big social media fan uh, 
You have a marketing, your own oh, yeah. private marketing company. I have a real estate and uh, marketing company, Bespoke Real Estate Photography. Visit me at bespokedenver.com. Uh, if you want to have me a podcast, contact Jeremy. <laughs> I, I, I have the connections. I can help you. No, because there's so, so much further we could have gone into every single one of these. Each one of these could have been their own episode. So Let me know if you want to do a Christmas one. Right? <laughs> we should do that. I actually want to do that because um, I also, we have, we're doing um, an episode on the history of Samhain, and we're going to do an episode on the history of Yule. And so maybe we'll we'll plug those in for Christmas too. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for having me. This oh, was a really so fun conversation. I love talking about movies. So I think our listeners also appreciated a little break from the heaviness of some of the other stories that we've done. We just did uh, Penhurst Asylum last week, which was a doozy and a half. So. I don't know how light these are either. I mean, <laughs> they're a little bit more culturally. I don't know. The body count's still high. Here. It's true. It is true. I guess we do death on this show. What can I say? I guess that's it. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. I will catch you next week for another Paranormal Tale. This has been an episode of When Walls Can Talk, the podcast, written, researched, and edited by your host, Jeremy Haig. I would be honored if you'd consider one friend that you think might enjoy this episode and share it with them. There's nothing that brings me more joy than listening to episodes or songs that my friends recommend. So please share the love with your tribe. Listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating or a comment so that this one-man operation can take off to a whole new group of listeners. Please don't forget to visit my website, www.whenwallscantalktarot.com, to learn more about me, the show, and to purchase our brand new merch finally available on our online shop. Listeners to the podcast get an exclusive 10% off using the code WITCHCREW at checkout. Don't forget to reach out to me on Instagram at whenwallscantalk with underscores for spaces, or email me at jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com. So long, paranormal adventures, and I will see you next time on When Walls Can Talk. <laughs>